John chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. Later, Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it and with the, spices, with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Thanks, Leah. Good morning again. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, what a great day to be gathered together to worship the risen Savior. Uh, we are now in a sermon series in the Gospel of John. As uh, we just read, we are not quite there yet in the story. Jesus is still in the tomb, but don't worry. We will get to the resurrection by the end of the sermon as we kind of foreshadow or, or ruin the ending of the story. I'm going to tell you he does get out of that tomb. But we're going to spend a bunch of time just sitting in that sad middle ground as we see a Jesus in the tomb. Seeming like all hope is lost in one of the darkest days of human history. Before we get started, though, whether, whether you love watching The Crown, maybe, on Netflix, anyone? Or maybe you love reading British tabloids, or maybe you just love the British monarchy in general. Or maybe not. Maybe you're not like that at all. I'm sure you noticed Last fall, something really big happened. The Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, passed away. And it was a very big deal. Worldwide, it was a very big deal. The whole world cared. And the whole world watched her funeral online and streaming, with many estimates saying this was the biggest event streamed and watched on TV in the history of uh, television and streaming. And the, the Queen's funeral... Uh, was magnificent. It was full of honoring her, of showing respect as people remembered her life and her legacy. It showed the importance of this uh, great figure as we saw, you know, I mean, just pomp and circumstance as you see hundreds and hundreds of uh, military people and, um, yeah, people coming to her funeral as well as uh, millions of people over, over one million people showed up in person flooding the streets at her funeral, as, as well as 500 heads of state and foreign dignitaries attending her funeral. What a, what, what a contrast between this and what we just read about. The king of kings, like we just sang, did not have a funeral like this. He was not remembered. He did not have respect. He did not have honor. He did not even have his closest friends with him as he was buried in the ground. With Jesus, no funeral, no memorial, no parade, only a few people present to quickly prepare his body before they lay it in the ground. At the death of the Lord of Lords, the King of all kings, the ruler of all royalty, we just see a humble burial as just a few people honor him and put his body in the ground. So to kind of intro where we are in this story, if you're brand new to Hiawatha or new to John, uh, Jesus, 
for the past uh, year plus, we've been reading in this Gospel of John about Jesus. We've seen his life, his ministry, his teachings, his healings, his miracles, and much more. In, in last week's passage, we see Jesus being crucified. And today, when we pick it up, Jesus is dead. His body is nearly unrecognizable. It's dangling from a Roman torture device. The light of the world has been snuffed out in two unlikely characters, one character we've never even met before, but two unlikely characters take his body down and they bury it in a tomb. So today we're entitling our sermon, Hope for the Doubters, the Deconstructors, and the Fearful, as we look at John 19, verses 38 through 42. So the first thing we're going to look at today is we're going to look at these two unique characters. One brand new, like I said, another one we've seen before, but if you don't know his story, we're very surprised that he shows up here at the end. And what we're going to do as we look at these two characters, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, we're going to see men who are described like this, men who are doubters, who have big doubts, serious doubts, real doubts, who are deconstructing their previous faith, their previous notions of what reality is, what, what, who God is, what humanity is, and the plan for God to redeem all things. And we're also going to see people who are deeply fearful, and fearful for the right reasons, legitimately fearful. And with that, we're going to see that there is, there's a place for everyone with Jesus. And hopefully you know that already, but in today's passage, we see it very clear that it is not the 12 disciples, it is not the women disciples that have followed Jesus, it is not the religious rulers, the people that know the Bible really well, the people that are very disciplined and very uh, religious. But today we're going to see, kind of zooming in on, on two people's stories, people who are not who you'd expect and see that with Jesus there is a place for everyone. There's hope for everyone, hope for anyone. Both these men, Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea are uh, Pharisees. Pharisees were uh, a part of the religious Jewish uh, leadership. We're not going to talk much about that part of them because we've hit on that in many sermons uh, before. If you know Jesus and his interactions with people, some of his greatest enemies were uh, the, the Pharisees, the people that he was getting in the most trouble with, the people that were against him the most were these Pharisees. But we're not going to hit on their jobs or their roles in the Jewish religious world that much. But rather, we're going to look at what types of people that these two men were. So first of all, they are deconstructors. A word that means to tear down or to the opposite of construction. These were people, two men, that were rethinking everything. So they were religious leaders. They knew the Torah really well. They had studied it for, for, for decades, probably. They taught other people what God wanted from them and what God had said and what God had done. Yet these guys right now, they are rethinking everything in light of Jesus Christ. They're thinking, we thought we understood what reality was, who humanity was, who God was, what faith and life were. But now this Jesus, he's shown up and shaken everything up. He made claims that were offensive, we hated, we thought were scandalous. And he said things that were un. Believable. Yet he also did so with authority and power like no one we've ever seen. This Jesus, he spoke to us as if God himself were talking. And his actions, 
could only be done through God as well. And most importantly, this guy claimed not to be just from God, but to be God himself. A claim so crazy that everyone wanted to kill him because it was so scandalous and wrong and against the law. We wanted him executed so much so that, that that's actually what happened. And he has just been executed. He is dead. And now these guys are rethinking everything. Who is this Jesus? I saw this tweet on uh, Twitter. Not a Christian. This guy, is a, he calls himself the Hellenist. But just let's read these top two lines. He says, real gods like Zeus on the left, statue on the left there, are forms of the good, strength, power, beauty, health, and virtue. Fake gods, this guy says, like Jesus, are forms of the bad, weakness, powerlessness, humiliation, ugliness, uh, emancipation, or emaciation. And what this guy, this guy kind of gets it right in some ways. He is, when he looks at Jesus, he is not seeing Zeus, at least not right now on the cross and in the tomb. And this, I think, is what uh, Joseph and Nicodemus are thinking. They're thinking uh, Yahweh, he's a God of power. He's a God of magnificence. He's a God of strength. He's a God of victory. Yet this Jesus, who claimed to be God, is weak. He's broken. He's humiliated. He's hanging on a cross. He's powerless. He's humiliated. How can that be? And the watching Jews, or the watching Greeks, and the watching Romans are thinking the exact same thing. And so with Nicodemus and Josephus, they are deconstructing. They are trying to understand reality in light of this Jesus while thinking through everything they've been taught, while thinking through all of the Torah, all of the prophets, all of the Psalms, thinking, can this really be true? But he lost. What's going on? In Nicodemus and Joseph, we're seeing something incredibly common with people who first encountered Jesus. Right? They begin to rethink everything. This is strange and can't be right, but I'm so drawn to him. His truth, his power, his love. And so we rethink humanity. We, we rethink reality. And we, when we see Jesus, we realize he does not fit in with any of the other human relationships we've had. He is unconditionally loving. He is sacrificial. He welcomes us and forgives us again and again and again. Currently within, within Christianity, deconstruction, this idea that let's uh, tear down our faith because of church hurt or because of uh, um, lies we believed or were taught. So within Christianity, deconstruction has become quite popular. Probably seen blog posts or, or podcasts where comedians, musicians, and artists share their deconstruction, share, this is who I used to be, it was wrong, this is why, and now I've come out the other side as a better person, or maybe not even a Christian at all. So whether it's, you know, celebrities and musicians and, and artists, which are very public in their deconstruction, and many of them even evangelizing Christians to de deconstruct with them, or whether it's people who have just experienced great church hurt, or they've been taught things that were just wrong, or they weren't allowed to ever ask questions, we see lots of deconstruction with them as well as they wrestle through, is what I taught correct? This person I loved and trusted that was a Christ figure, the authority figure, has betrayed me or let me down. So is this true? Or I can finally, I'm in a place where I can ask questions in my life. 
So now I can finally think, is this true or not? And, and deconstruction often gets a bad rap, and, and sometimes for good reasons, because uh, often it's easier to be loved by the world or to just drop doctrines of the faith or of Jesus that go against what our culture is teaching. Yet, in a lot of ways, deconstruction can be a powerful, important thing. And the reality is, all of us, to some extent, have gone through this. Whether for the first time in your life, you go off to college or you get a job, you leave your parents' home, and you, for the first time, you have to decide, is what my parents taught me true? Or maybe you go off to college or to a school and you hear a professor or a speaker or a leader say, this is not what the Bible says. This is not what Christianity is about. This is not what is true about reality. And you have to think through, is this really what I believe or not? Or maybe you move to a new city or you join a new church and you say, wow, I've never seen Christians live like this before. I've never seen someone read the Bible like this before. And so you, in big or small ways, deconstruct or you think through what you have believed in the past. And so this idea of, of deconstruction is actually quite normal in the Christian life. And so two things that I want us to see here. I want us to see in the story of Nicodemus and Joseph. The first thing is there is a place for you. If you're deconstructing right now, if you're wrestling through big church hurt, big doubts, big questions, you don't know what you believe anymore, there's a place for you. There's a place for you among Jesus' disciples. There's a place for you here within the church. If you have big questions about who Jesus is, about what the Bible teaches, about the faith, about the church, you don't need to run. You don't need to run. If this is you, there's been people just like you since the very beginning that don't have all their questions answered, that are deeply confused and, and, and emotionally disturbed as they wrestle through what they thought was true. There's been people like that connected to Jesus since the very beginning and who also have stayed Jesus' disciples. Notice these two guys, they're close to Jesus in the end. They're close to Jesus despite all that it was going to cost them. And if we know from reading the rest of the Bible, the enemy, we have an enemy who wants to destroy us, and he would love nothing more than to separate you in your moment of weakness, in your moment of doubt, in your moment of deconstructing. Think about great predators. What do they do when a lion hunts wildebeest? What does he do? He doesn't go after the whole herd when they're together and strong, but rather he picks off one that is weak, one that is sick, one that is separated from the herd, and that's exactly what the enemy would like to do. And so our encouragement to us from our story here today is that your deconstruction does not need to end in destruction. It doesn't need, doesn't need to end in you leaving Jesus or you leaving the faith. But rather it can lead to reconstruction as you stay close to Jesus. As you ask these big questions, as you wrestle with doubts, as you, as you share your hurt and grieve alongside other believers and, and, and with God in prayer, it can lead to good. It can lead to construction and to health. But stay close to Jesus, just like Joseph and Nicodemus did. And staying close to Jesus looks like listening to Jesus, his words, by being close to his physical body right here on earth, which is the church, and by being led by the power of his spirit. 
So if this is you, still ask those big questions. Still wrestle through your doubt. Lean into it. Try to unpack it. Try to find truth. But you don't have to put on a mask. You don't have to come and gather with other Christians as if you have certainty, as if everything's okay, as if there's nothing that's hard to receive. But rather, come and be with Jesus. Pastor and author Jerome Gay Jr. writes about this in his book on church hurt and deconstruction. He says, deconstruction can be the road to reconstruction, building up a more mature, robust faith that grapples honestly with the deep questions of life. Constructive deconstruction takes, places, or takes place in community, not in isolation. It allows and welcomes challenges, but it deconstructs culture, not Christ. So if this is you, don't run. Don't run. Especially if you're saying, I love Jesus, but I just have these big doubts. Jesus tells you today, through his word, if you love him, don't run from him. Don't run from his people. Don't run from his word. Don't run from his spirit. But stay close. Stay close to him and to other, other believers. Stay close to Jesus through his words, through his body, and the truth that he brings through his spirit. Okay, let's zoom in on each one of these characters now. So they're both deconstructing. They're both wrestling through what has just happened, trying to figure out reality. But let's look at Joseph of Arimathea. He's described as a disciple of Jesus. First time we meet him. He's a disciple of Jesus, but secretly a disciple because he feared the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders. So we get some great insight into this brand new disciple who have never met before, who followed Jesus, who actually believed in Jesus, yet for fear of the Jewish religious leaders, for fear of the group that he was a part of, he was in secret. And lots of, you know, lots of legitimate reasons for this guy to fear, right? He was a Pharisee. If he had followed Jesus as rabbi and even God and Lord, he would lose his, his livelihood. He would lose his religious status as a Pharisee. He would probably lose his connection to his friends, to his family, to his ethnic heritage as he'd be rejected by the Jewish leaders. And there's very real fear as well as we just saw what happened to Jesus. Right? The Jewish religious leaders pushed for the execution of his Lord and the Romans went along with it. So rather than looking at Joseph as a great coward, which in some ways he was cowardly, we can also receive great empathy thinking about the situation that he was in. And many of us, maybe we highly resonate with this fear, this fear of being publicly a Christian. And maybe on paper or aloud or in our minds, we would say, no, I'm not afraid of Jesus. But the reality is there's very legitimate reasons to actually have fear about publicly being labeled or being uh, known as a Christian. Maybe with regards to your neighbors. Maybe you live in a very not Christian, secular, even hostile to Christianity neighborhood or city. So you probably have, some of us maybe have legitimate fears about if our neighbors found out we were Christians, especially maybe before building a relationship with us, maybe we have fears of being rejected by our neighbors or our neighbors thinking that we're bigoted or hateful or just misunderstanding us. Maybe you're afraid of your classmates finding out that you're a Christian and, and teasing you or ostracizing you or even canceling you because of being a follower of Jesus and all that entails. Maybe you're afraid of your colleagues finding out that you are a Christian. Maybe it's because you're afraid they'll think of you as 
uneducated or a fool. Or maybe you have fears of being punished by not adhering to whatever new social norms or whatever your company is all about and pushing. Or maybe you're afraid of your family knowing that you're a Christian because they will mock you. Or maybe they think that you're abandoning what your family is about or what your family's identity is or even be disowned. And some of this, to some of you might be thinking, these are, you know, conspiracies. These are, this is fear-mongering. But the reality is, I've talked to many of you, and I have many, you know, I could put names to every single one of these examples as you share with me how there is fear in being publicly acknowledged as a disciple of Jesus. So that can give us great empathy as we see this guy, Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus, yet secretly. So again, I want to remind you there's hope and there's a place for people who are afraid of being publicly uh, called a Christian, seen as a disciple of Jesus. If that is you, there's a place for you near Jesus and among his people and in our church. You are not alone if this describes you well. Jesus promised that the world would hate us because the world first hated him. And we too have some legitimate reasons for being afraid to be found out as a disciple of Christ. Now, of course, we don't want to stay there. Of course, that is not what we desire, right? We wish that we'd be, have no fear and be very bold about our faith constantly, courageous and fearless. And let's pray for that, that we definitely want that. Yet, the reality is often we're not, right? Often we are fearful. And even when we're cowards, even when we're fearful, Jesus does not reject us. In your moment of not standing up for Jesus in your neighborhood or workplace or online or among your classmates, Jesus doesn't say, fine, you rejected me, I'm out of here. Jesus does not leave us even though we might be tempted to leave him publicly. His faithfulness is not dependent on how faithful you are in wearing the Christian banner or calling yourself a disciple publicly. Which is great news for us. It's great news because there's a place for us as fellow fearful people at times, and Jesus' love for us. Our security with him does not change in our faithlessness. Now finally, let's look at Nicodemus. Let's zoom in on him a little bit more. Nicodemus, the doubter. So we saw, if you remember, maybe you don't, back in, uh, like a year ago, back in John 3, we had this great interaction. Nicodemus found Jesus. He was intrigued by Jesus. He had a nighttime conversation with Jesus because he also was afraid of what it would mean to talk to Jesus publicly. But he was intrigued. He, he had one of the longest recorded conversations with Jesus in the New Testament, asking deep questions, clarifying questions, theological questions, yet he still had deep doubts. He was a doubter. And if that is you, if you have doubts as well, again, you are not alone. I listened to a podcast of a very uh, popular Christian uh, author and teacher, and he had, it was Q&A time, and he was asked, what's, what's one of the toughest things for you about the Christian faith? And he was just being honest. He said, one of the hardest things I have is, why doesn't God just make it very clear that he exists and, and what his plan of salvation is? Like, this guy was saying, that's really hard for me. Why doesn't he just show up in a cloud? Why doesn't he show up in a dream? Why, why doesn't he make it very clear to every human being who he is, who we are, what his plan of salvation is? 
So this guy was longing for that. And while that's a very natural desire and a very great question, I mean, Nicodemus is a character that shows us you can see God in person. You can see God face to face. You can have all your questions answered and you can still go away and be a doubter. You can still be not convinced. Doubts and unbelieving hearts is the natural, normal human response. And so if that is you, you are normal. Welcome to humanity. And we see that uh, Nicodemus, back in his story, is interacted with Jesus. He already had profound doubts. He was asking great questions and was not receiving what Jesus had for him. You could see he was very intrigued. And now you can just wonder what's going through Nicodemus's mind right now in, in, in our passage here today. The king has just died, but he said he was the Messiah. What is going on? Maybe he wasn't the Messiah. What does this mean? And you can just hear, in, in, or you could guess, we could guess what's going on in his heart. Jesus is not just a loved one who has died, but he is the man, the Messiah, the person that we have put all of our hope into. So it's heartbreaking. All of our hope is gone. You might be thinking Nicodemus and, and Joseph and others are going through right now. In her beautiful song, uh, Jillian Welch writes this, kind of gives us this great phrase that helps us understand what's going on in the disciples of, or in the minds of disciples and, and Nicodemus and Joseph as well. She writes in her song, uh, By the Mark, They wrapped him in linen, so confused and afraid. Every hope was buried in the ground where he now laid. And so you can just understand, we can picture, we can guess what these uh, disciples are going through, right? Just confusion, doubt. I thought he said he was God. I thought he said he was Messiah. What can be going on? And one more time, let me remind you, if this is you, this is your reality, if this is who you are right now, if this is your story, there is a place for you near Jesus. There is a place for you among his people, among the doubters, among the deconstructors, and among the fearful. Questions are good. Wrestling through ideas and thoughts and truth claims, that's normal. Certainty in everything, that's actually not normal. Nor is it the goal, certainty in every single little doctrine, but rather the goal is Jesus and Jesus himself. You maybe notice here too that Nicodemus is not described as a disciple, which is kind of, kind of interesting, right? He's not described here as a disciple. We know that he's deeply interested in Jesus. He has conversations with him. We see a little bit later in John that he actually sticks up for Jesus a little bit. And then here we see he's risking everything by publicly and sacrificially caring for Jesus' dead body. Yet unlike Joseph, he's not called a disciple. So hopefully you know this already, especially if you're a visitor or newer to our church. You don't have to be a Christian to be here. You don't have to be a disciple of Jesus to be here, to come to our events, to join our youth group, to be in our community groups, to have deep friendships here at Hiawatha. There's a number of non-Christians who gather with us regularly that say, I'm intrigued by this Jesus guy, but I just have too many doubts. I'm fearful of what it will cost me. I have big questions but I'm still drawn toward this Jesus character. And I love what I see among his people. And I haven't quite put my finger on it, or I'm not quite ready 
to give my whole life to him, yet I want to be around him and his people and, and hear more about him. If that's you, welcome. It's safe to be here. We want you to be here. Of course, we want to convince you. Of course, Jesus wants you to be his disciple, to receive his forgiveness and his saving grace. Yet if you're not quite there yet, that's okay. This is a safe place to be. Now, if we actually remember, if you remember, again, a year ago, when we were in John 3, if you remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, at the end, he, Jesus began to wrap it up by saying, Nicodemus, the son of man, Nicodemus, me, I'm going to have to be lifted up. Just like Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness in this very important story in our people's history, the Son of Man also is going to be lifted up. And when people look at that, they're going to receive not just healing from venomous snake bites, but they're going to receive healing from the, the venom and the poison of sin and death. They're going to receive eternal life. And so we can kind of guess that Nicodemus's wheels are probably turning as he's taking Jesus's body and wrapping it in linens and putting myrrh on it thinking wait we just took Jesus down from being lifted up on the earth I thought he meant lifted up by like ascending a throne or sitting high above people or floating in the sky as only God can do but maybe this is what he meant by the son of man must being lifted up maybe Jesus was predicting his death and you can see or we can guess that Nicodemus's wheels are beginning to turn. Maybe Jesus' death isn't the end. And even while Nicodemus isn't convinced, even while he's not called a disciple right here in our passage, even while he's wrestling through his doubts, he chooses to stay near Jesus. He doesn't run, he doesn't hide, he doesn't give up. And this is a great example for those of us who feel a lot like Nicodemus. Doubters people who wrestle with truth, people who aren't yet convinced. Stay near Jesus. All right, now we're going to move on to the last few verses of our passage here today, Jesus' actual burial. We're going to look at Jesus' burial through two lenses. The first lens, we're going to look at it just historically. We're going to look back and see God is almighty, he's sovereign, and he's in control of all the details. So everything described here is not just coincidence or random. But God as master storyteller, master creator is, is intricately and deliberately setting up all the details of Jesus' death and burial which will set up his resurrection which will come in just a few verses. So let's look at Jesus' burial. First thing, we're going to look at three things here to see how Jesus' burial, these details are setting up the reality of the resurrection that's coming very soon. First is that they took a dead body off of the cross. John says, taking Jesus' body, not Jesus, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and in strips of linen. They took a dead body off of the cross. Now, a few things are important for us to get with this. To be clear, John tells us that Jesus was dead. And we're going to look at a number of the characters here in this story and why it is so important that Jesus was dead and why it is very risky for them to think that Jesus is dead if he really was not. Or like the Princess Bride said, Jesus is not mostly dead and just needs a little, you know, chocolate-covered brown pill to bring him back, but rather he was fully dead. 
First Pilate, we have seen him in previous weeks, the guy who's the Roman guy who's in charge of Jesus' death. If Jesus was not dead and they let him down off the cross, this would be a huge risk for him. So much negative consequences would happen if Jesus wasn't really dead, right? He would risk looking like a huge fool, you know, trying to execute this guy who is bringing a, a revolt, yet he actually doesn't kill him. This would be great risk for Pilate as well, punishment from Caesar for not doing his job well, not squashing an uprising or someone who claimed to be king. Pilate is risking a revolution starting. He's risking even more disdain and disrespect in conflict with the Jewish religious leaders if Jesus really isn't dead. So Pilate was convinced Jesus was dead. And not only Pilate, but also the many soldiers Right? Pastor Chris brought this up in last week's sermon. The soldiers that crucified Jesus, Jesus knew that if they didn't do the job correctly, they would be thrown up on that cross as well. So lots of motivation for these soldiers to get it right. Because if they get it wrong, they're in big, big trouble. Not to mention they are professional executors. That's their job. They know exactly how to tell if that body up there is dead. And no, they better not bring it down until it is dead. John also, we see, describes Jesus as being dead. And we know through history and church history, John deeply was persecuted because he claimed that Jesus was dead and was later risen from the grave. Both politically and violently, Jesus, or John, the author that's writing this, was persecuted. So the reality is, historically, Jesus was crucified and he did die. Our passage continues saying that he was wrapped up, right? Think mummified, not like full-on mummified, but quickly because the Sabbath is about to come and, uh, very soon. So they wrap his body in strips of cloth. They use this myrrh to anoint his body and to keep it from decaying until they can come back after the Sabbath and fully prep his body for uh, burial. And so Jesus was wrapped up in cloths. His body was mutilated on the cross. They put a five-foot stone at the entrance of his tomb, all of which make his escape and him actually being alive and escaping after a few days highly, highly unlikely. But that, that's not the only uh, details that John gives us here. He also says that Jesus was laid in a new tomb. So here's an art, artist rendering of what a tomb like that would look like. So it would probably be a, a chamber back here that's, a, think of a man-made cave, so carved into the stone. So we'd have the uh, main part of the tomb back there. There'd be a little entrance here, and then there'd be a round stone that would be rolled in place to protect the bodies uh, inside from being tampered with at all. So in verse 41, when John says that they laid him in a new tomb, it gives us even more evidence for uh, Jesus this being him, this being his tomb, and that he truly will be, or, you know, gives more evidence to the claim that Jesus was resurrected in just a few days. So a few things with this. Uh, it was a brand new tomb. It's described as no one had ever been laid in it before. So it wasn't as if there was a bunch of bodies in there and, and people just got confused, the disciples or the Roman soldiers. So there was not an opportunity for confusion and mix-up about which body was which or which body disappeared and which didn't. 
It was also close to where the crucifixion happened. Our passage here, to, uh, here says there was a garden in the same place where Jesus was crucified. So this tomb wasn't miles away where more confusion could happen. It was close. It was known about. The authorities knew where this tomb was, as did the soldiers. And so here, at the climax of salvation history, God is powerfully controlling all the pieces of Jesus' death and his burial so that it will be perfectly clear in just a few verses, in just a few days, what exactly did happen. God brilliantly and deliberately is laying the pieces in place that will give his son's resurrection the support, the evidence, and the proof that it will need for millions of people to believe in over thousands and thousands of years. God is putting into place clear and intentional details and circumstances and actions that will help bring faith to even the greatest skeptics and doubters. So now, the best objections to the resurrection of Jesus Christ will honestly look quite weak. Things like, well, Jesus never really did die, but rather he was mostly dead, or kind of dead, or he just fooled people. And after just a few days in this tomb, he came back to life, he removed all these uh, wrappings from him, he pushed the rock away, he knocked out the guards and walked around and his body healed really quickly so everyone thought that he was resurrected. Right? Just weak arguments if, 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 we're really, um, if we are really honest with ourselves. Or another big objection to Jesus' resurrection is, well, it wasn't Jesus. Everyone was just fooled. It was a different body, a different person. Maybe a, a, a double or maybe Jesus' twin. And so what God is doing here is he's helping us see what really happened, giving us the support that we need so when we hear about the resurrection, despite it seeming far-fetched and unimaginable, is actually the best option. It is actually what really happened. All right, now let's look at Jesus' burial through another lens. So John, he could have given us literally a a thousand different details about exactly what happened with Jesus' burial. Yet John's giving us specific ones. He's giving us specific details that maybe seem strange to us or or not necessary to help us symbolically see all that Jesus is theologically accomplishing here, both in his death and his resurrection. So now we're going to look at Jesus' burial and get a glimpse into what is being accomplished, the, the theological details and the symbols that help us understand exactly what's going on and why this is so important. John's going to go to great lengths to show us everything that Jesus is doing. And also that the whole book, everything we've read up to this point in John, is actually not just about random characters or random events, but ultimately about Jesus. So the first thing we see here, and there's lots of things we could pick up on, I'd encourage you with your roommates or family or community groups this week, look at, I mean, I have like six more details we just can't get to today that are profound and brilliant and powerful. We're going to look at a few uh, this morning. The first is, Jesus' body, like we said, was wrapped in linen. It was put in a tomb with a stone in in front of it. And if you remember, if you just think about the Gospel of John, when was the last time we saw a man who was dead, whose body was taken, wrapped in strips of linen, put in a tomb with a stone in front of it. The last time this happened was when Jesus, his friend, 
a guy named Lazarus died. And it's when Jesus resurrected this guy from the grave. So as readers of John, our first thoughts might be, hey, another guy is dead in a tomb wrapped up in linens with a rock in front of the entrance. So our minds will be going to thinking, John's foreshadowing. The resurrection hasn't happened yet in John. But here John is foreshadowing what is about to happen. Another man, this time the God-man, Jesus Christ, will come out of his tomb and he will remove his boulder. But unlike Lazarus, he won't need anyone to unwrap him and he won't need to die ever again. Romans 6 speaks about Jesus' resurrection, which is infinitely greater than Lazarus's, which is maybe one of the greatest miracles that we've seen in the Bible up to this point. Romans 6 says, Christ was raised from the dead. He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death that Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. We also see another theological glimpse because of the details that John picks up on. Let's go back to this this reference, this description to the exact tomb and the type of tomb where he was laid. We see that Jesus was laid in a new tomb, a tomb that's described no one else had ever been laid in this tomb before. And that teaches us, that tells us that Jesus is doing something new, something brand new, someone that no human being has ever done before. And that's being raised to life, raised to this type of life we just read about in Romans 6, life that will not ever end again. Jesus is about to accomplish something that no one has ever done, resurrected eternal life, ushering something new in a new type of covenant that was different than the old covenant, ushering in a new family that's different than any other family before it. I was talking with a a guy here from Hiawatha about this, and he had this great insight. He said, uh, Jesus, um, or he says, having a never-before-used tomb points us to a newly created family. So think about other tombs, right? This is a tomb that was brand new, just been cut. No one else laid in it. Old tombs, other tombs, right? It was a tomb that was your ancestors' bones were laid in it. It was the Peterson tomb or the Johnson tomb or the Smith tomb. And in that tomb was body after body after body, bones and bones of our forefathers and our ancestors. But symbolically, theologically, what's going on here, Jesus being laid in a brand new tomb shows us that a new covenant is being ushered in. A new family is starting right here through Jesus' new covenant built on Jesus' death and his works and not our own. The third and final thing that we see here, a a true real detail that John is helping us to see that will connect to great theological truth that actually came up multiple times before in John, helping us see the culmination of Jesus' life and John's description of Jesus' life and ministry. We see that now again in a garden, a seed has died. A seed is being placed into the ground, and through that death, through that seed being placed into the ground, new life is about to come. We saw Jesus speak about this back in John 12. If you remember, Jesus said, the the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Jesus makes this great statement, the Son of Man, the Messiah, he's about to be glorified. This is how that's going to happen. The very next verse he says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is telling his disciples here, this is how the Son of Man is going to be glorified. This is the mission that the Messiah has. He's going to come into the world and through him being like a seed that dies and is placed into the ground, through that, something is going to grow. New life is going to come. Many seeds are now going to be produced. From the death of the one, new life is going to come. And just a few uh, chapters later, Jesus continues with this metaphor, very common one that you've probably heard, even if you don't know much about Jesus or the Gospel of John. He helps f- uh, fill out what he means in verse 12. He says, I am the vine. He switches from wheat to vine. I am the vine. You are the branches, he says. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And just in case we don't quite get what he's saying, he makes it clear again. He says, greater love has no one than this. There's no greater love out there than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. So here, in this tomb, in this new garden, a new seed is dying. Jesus' body is being laid, put under the earth, just like a seed that is being planted. And he prophesied and promised that this is the way that he was going to bring new life. That he is now going to victoriously come back to life, being raised from the grave, now as a vine, and now more and more fruit will grow from that as we stay connected to him. And that's what's going on here in the garden, in this tomb, in our passage here in John. And this is what gives hope, back to where we started, this is what gives hope to those who doubt, those who are terrified and fearful and at times great cowards. This is what brings hope to those who are deconstructing their faith, is that Jesus died in our place so that we might receive life. Jesus was a seed that was placed in a tomb so that new life may grow out of it. And the reason, or the way that we get new life is being, like he says here in John 15, being connected to him, right? Again and again we said, You can have doubts. You can be wrestling through deconstruction. You can have great fear. Yet stay close to Jesus. And what does Jesus say here in John 15? The way that we stay alive, the way that fruit grows from within us is by abiding in him, by by staying connected to the vine. You don't have to produce fruit all by yourself. You don't have to show that you have faith or strength or confidence or fearlessness or wisdom. You have to stay near Jesus. You have to be connected to him. And we pray that if that is you, that you would grow from from fear to fearlessness, that you would go from doubts to certainty in Jesus, that you'd go from deconstruction into constructing a new and firm and, and, and sound faith in Jesus. We pray for that. 
We invite you to that today. See Jesus' love for you. See his power. See God the Father's magnificent plan. And we pray that you would believe, even if it's hard to believe. But if you're still not there, know that you can stay close to Jesus. Do not run from him. If you'd like to talk and pray, I will be up front. Find another leader here in the church. Talk to someone that you know or maybe that you came with. And as we wrap up, just know and remember Jesus' love for you. That he went not just to a, a torturous, humiliating death separated from the Father, but he was buried and he stayed in that grave so that like a seed can spring up from the ground in the spring that we too might have new life in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is just so honest. It's brutally honest. The, the heroes of the Bible are not heroes at all. They're actually broken, fearful, questioning, imperfect people. So we thank you for that great honesty that we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be strong or wise or fearless to be close to you or to be among your people. God, we pray for faith. We pray for faith for us in this room who are doubting faith of us for us in this room who are uh, who have gone through great church hurt who have been lied to and we pray for faith for those who don't yet believe who are intrigued who are curious who are drawn to you but have not yet believed we pray for more faith god we know that faith is a gift from the spirit and so we pray that your spirit would move in supernatural and powerful ways to give all of us faith in this room we thank you that the tomb is empty, that the story does not stop here in this, in this verse, but rather it continues. The tomb is empty. You are risen. You are victorious. You have defeated our great enemies of Satan, sin, and death, and you offer new and eternal and glorious life with you. We thank you for that good news. Uh, we praise you for it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.